Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Right, and welcome back to one episode 110 of the Back Pain Podcast. So, we're going to jump straight in, straight into it today. Andrew, what is an ACL? So, the ACL is one of the sort of major ligaments within inside your tibial femoral joint or the big joint of your knee. It's one of the cruciate ligaments, which of, of which there are two. Uh, they're organized in a cross in the middle. Sorry, I'm making crosses, although this is an audible. Obviously, this uh, face for face for uh, uh, TV and not radio, obviously. Um, we can imagine. The, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, the the primary role of, of the ACL is, is to restrain uh, translation uh, and some portions of rotation. So it's a stabilizing ligament, essentially. Um, it's it's really, really important, not just for stability, but also for feedback about where the knee is and such. So um, it's it's an important structure within your knee that is commonly injured, basically, with sporting movements, most commonly. So then those sporting movements, how does it get or if we start with kind of, you know, how does it get injured? Is it normally a classic mechanism of injury that kind of causes it to, to, to get injured or is it, you know, can it be atypical injuries as well? Yeah, there's there's a, a big proportion of them will be uh, banded into what's called dynamic knee valgus. Uh, this is a, a combination of uh, positions essentially adopted by the body, which essentially basically means the foot is turned out, the the knee shifts inwards towards the central line of the body. You get a rotation at the pelvis and the trunk, and as a result, lots of force is working through that translation in a in a in a valgus or or inwards uh, mechanism through the knee that's the most commonly seen position for for an acl injury there are some that that come outside of that you uh, think of maybe your your zlatan ibrahimovic type of mechanism where you're landing from a jump and the knee can be forced into a hyperextension position and in that hyperextension you can still end up with a translational force at the knee or, or a, a shearing force where one uh, your tibia essentially moves forwards uh, with reference to your femur and as a result you can end up sort of tearing or or partially injuring uh, that that ligament within your knee so then when you think of that kind of foot turning out knee coming in is that that classic ski injury where the, the ski's gone one way and your body's gone the other way and you know the middle joint being your knee has has buckled effectively in the middle yeah, it absolutely can be. And, um, you know, the, the funny thing about the skiing injury is everybody thinks it, it's only going to happen at a really fast speed, you know, but but given the sort of lever that the ski presents at the bottom of the, the leg, actually, a lot of the ski ACL injuries I see have happened at, you know, little to no speed sometimes. It's, it's really commonly seen. And I, I saw one uh, just a few months ago where a friend had basically skied over the back of somebody else's skis for a bit of a laugh. They'd ended up in a sort of splayed knee position. Leg went one way, body went the other. And as a result, you hear that loud pop or you hear you feel that pop within the knee. You, you often, as the patient, know something has happened. It feels relatively serious, even though often they're, they're not quite sure what's happened, but they know something has happened. Uh, and then the knee can either, you know, can be painful. It's not always painful, but it, but it most commonly is painful. And then you get very rapid swelling that tends to happen within, you know, the first few hours or in the first day, for instance. 
talking of ski injuries, I, I have a patient who I know is going to be listening to this because I'm going to send it to him. Um, and one of the things he said to me was, I really wish I'd happened at a, at a more impressive speed when I was skiing. Um, you know, because it's one of those things, oh, a knee injury, what were you doing? Oh, I was racing downhill at 70 miles an hour. No, I was just, you know, poodling down, down, down the slope at five miles an hour and had a funny twist and my, you know, ski got stuck and pop. Yeah, knee pain, you know, so it's, yeah, it definitely doesn't have to be those really extreme sports that you kind of see sometimes, does it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the, the thing is, with, when, you're, when you're moving at speed, especially on a ski slope, you often, if you crash, you tend to just tumble and tumble and tumble. Skis fly off and you kind of get a bit lucky, really. Uh, the, the problem tends to happen if you're at low speed is often the ski won't come off the binding. And as a result, you get that kind of large twisting mechanism at the bottom of your foot. As a result of your ankle not being able to take any of that because it's fixed inside your boot, you end up with a twisting uh, rotational force at the knee, which, which, as we know, gives you a problem. So we mentioned skiing. Are there any other sports that have a higher predisposition to to an ACL injury? Yeah, you tend, you know, I describe this to patients. I say, like, you often don't see an ACL injury in sport unless there is basically an opponent um, directly involved. And it's most commonly in kind of field based sports. So um, what I mean, what I mean by that is you're rarely going to see an injury as such when you're kind of on your own playing in a field for instance and there's no one around you and, and there, there are factors that potentially we'll discuss as we go around that but you, they most commonly happen in active sporting environments where there is a game state happening um the, the sports in which they most commonly happen probably in the uk we're talking your soccers or your football um, we're talking rugby uh, netball uh, basketball those sorts of sports to be fair um you, you do see quite a high um, occurrence in uh, water sports, like water skiing, for instance. Again, that's kind of similar in a way to what we've already discussed. There's a big plank and a, and a rotation. And then even then, they add in a big old jump and you're attached to a, attached to a boat. So it's, you know, yeah, that, there's no surprise, really. But in, in Europe and perhaps in the US, that, that changes a little bit. You start to bring, obviously, sports that are particular for that demographic. If we're talking sort of uh, Europe, you, you're going to get your handballs, for instance, uh, they're going to start to come in. If we're, uh, if we're talking um, more in sort of US, you're going to get NFL is a, is a huge one, for, or American football, sorry, is a huge one for it. And that's, you know, NFL was played at such a speed, at such a rate, it, it stops, everybody gets a rest, and then everybody goes at 100 miles an hour again. Um, loads of variables, loads of things changing, and as a result, that increases the chance in those sorts of sports. And I, I guess, like you said, it's that kind of opponent, you're cutting, turning, changing direction, usually at that pace with a, a high degree of unpredictability, you know, because when you're, you know, if you're playing basketball and you're dribbling in a straight line and someone's coming at you, you know, it's a split second decision, whether you're going left, right, diagonal, forwards, backwards, and it's that kind of unpredictability. And then you add in, you know, a bit of instability of changing direction, add in someone coming in from the left or the right or behind you. And that quick change is then what's going to, you know, potentially, it's hard to prepare for that. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, uh, interestingly, there's quite a lot coming out about when the, the situations in which they happen within the sports and soccer uh, or football. Sorry, I keep calling it soccer because I've got a, an American client at work at the moment. I'm, uh, so apologies. Um, but uh, they, they tend to happen in, in football, for instance, in defensive pressing positions. So they don't have uh, possession of the ball. They are reacting to the person who has the ball, for instance, or is about to get the ball, they are moving to a position where they're trying to react dynamically to what is a situation that they have no control over. And as a result, because that person is essentially going to try to beat them, change them, ball change direction, they are 
the perturbation or the the uh, unpredictability is 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 natural in that position because they are not in control of the ball or the or, or the game as, as such so um, you're absolutely right pivoting cutting change of direction most commonly um, when you don't have possession of the ball um, uh, and in, in some sports and then also quite commonly non-contact and and you know we're talking up up towards 70 percent of those injuries are going to happen without an actual physical contact to that person which is surprising um uh, I, I think certainly when i started that that surprised me i always thought of these big knee injuries as big contacts big impacts such you know but but actually that doesn't seem to wash out yeah and you, you think of you know when you think of a big you know big knee injury you think of you know there's an 18 stone rugby player landed on me from a funny direction or something and it's a you don't necessarily think of all all I did was you know change direction and my knee went pop you know that's not the the classic picture that most people have in their head what about other predispositions you know is there a a gender prevalence you know is it more likely to happen in in males females something like that when it comes to playing sports yeah this is um uh, this is sort of fairly contentious or, or 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 being discussed a lot in physio research at the moment in the ACL world. And there is more females when you compare females in soccer and males in soccer in the same sport, it tends to happen to females more. Um, uh, and there are probably some, some situations and reasons behind that. There, there's, originally, we thought this is very much related to the, the way the, the female skeleton is organised, um, you know, a, a purely biomechanical reason for why that, that person has a chance of getting an injury and, and they, they, they probably are well there are some biomechanical reasons around why uh, the female for instance might be more at risk for that injury but there's probably some other stuff as well which is largely environmental um, now this isn't the, the, the I suppose the podcast to, to harp on about the kind of how I feel about that but but certainly if we think about and I have a daughter so this is kind of acutely obvious to me at this point men are kind of encouraged to go to the gym to train to kind of get strong uh, and 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 often get all of the um provision for that sort of training in their earlier lives in things like rugby and and football certainly traditionally at a good level whereas females often you know the weight room might not they might not use the weight room they might not be encouraged to eat the weight room you know culturally men lift weights women run you know historically traditionally and 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 as a result perhaps we're giving them more opportunity for some of these injuries because perhaps they're not exposed to the type of demands in training that are going to kind of are going to help them or prevent these injuries as such so yes there there is um there is an increased rate in female especially in things in sports like soccer um but i think there's quite a lot we could do to before we could really say we've given them a, a perfect chance to kind of judge them evenly if that makes sense yeah, well, hopefully that will then, you know, in the next kind of decade plus will then hopefully change, you know, with the rise of things like the Lionesses doing so fantastically, you know, a couple of weeks ago, that's going to inspire so many young, young females, young girls to do what, you know, has been historically done by five-year-old boys, you know, is going to be different now. So fingers crossed that that will change that. And it's so good to see that as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's, you know, you see your country win a, a major tournament and as a result, you know, more funding is going to go into it, more people are going to follow and hopefully you know, in like say in the next 10 or 20 years, we, we might be able to make a better judgment about, about some of these things. And I think that, that that's good. So are they very commonly injured in isolation? So with most of the kind of, you know, the, the twisting valgus injuries that you see them with the knee, 
is it often just the ACL that's gone or can other structures then be injured at the same time? Yeah, I think if you end up with an isolated ACL injury, you, you've won the lottery, essentially, because although it's a terrible injury and, and, and one, one in which no, we, we don't want to happen, of course, because it's a long recovery, it's pretty unlikely you're going to not have injured something else. Um, the mechanism, the force, the speed at which these seem to happen gives you a higher chance of injuring other structures in the knee. Now, we see a very common pattern of bruising in the bony tissue. Um, so uh, you, you, you definitely will see a, a bone bruise pattern, um, which tends to be very, you know, if you, even if you couldn't determine where, whether someone had injured the ACL, if you could see the bone bruising in a particular pattern, you'd, you'd be given some confidence that there might be an ACL injury. You have a higher chance of injuring the meniscus, mainly because of the, the sort of turning and rotation alongside the valgus. There's going to be an element of compression into your, your buffer or your meniscus within your knee, which, is, which has a really high chance of, of being injured. Then because of the pattern, you also have a chance of injuring your medial collateral ligament or the stabilizing ligament down the inside of your knee. Um, and then you can also end up with a myriad of other injuries if it's a really complex position, really high speed, or if there's impact, which, which essentially could expose any aspect of your knee, like some of the other stabilizing structures. Okay, so, so that, you know, winning the lottery, I quite like that phrase, you know, for the people that have just had an ACL injury. That should give them from uh, in isolation should give them a bit of confidence. Then really. yeah, they might not feel like that initially, but no, but, of course but, not. But but certainly, and it's true. You know, if you see an isolated ACL injury, they are the ones as well. If they've got good other elements, where you might say to them, depending on their sporting demands, you've got a good chance of potentially managing because you haven't exposed the other aspects of your knee, and we know that some can manage without surgery. So you presuming some other factors fit you might be a good candidate to not have this re acl reconstructed uh, and that certainly doesn't work for everyone and, and i'm not saying that, that that it would but but that's the person you're thinking okay well let's think about some other elements and see what how this stacks Con contrary to that if they've got a whacking great meniscal tear if they've ended up with a significant mcl tear well those two structures also help support rotational stability and valgus stability so if you've torn the three major sort of supporting uh, candidates for that sort of injury and that sort of direction, you might not, and I'm not saying that's blanket for everybody, but you might not look at that person and say, I tell you what, this is a person that we're going to go conservative. Having said that, there are some that do, but, but that might change the scales a little. So then if this has just happened, you know, so there's someone listening who's just done this, they've gone to see a physio, they've gone to see a doctor, whatever, whatever their kind of route of care is how is it then diagnosed is it always is a scan always needed is that an mri scan an x-ray an ultrasound you know what you know is it something you can just detect in the room what are we looking at with it when it comes to diagnosis yeah i think uh, first of all um as with many and, and i'm sure you've spoke about this on your on your on many of your back pain um podcasts like a, basically the patient is going to tell you before you've even touched it felt it or looked at it really if they've said to you there was no one around me i was playing soccer I went to turn, I felt a pop in my knee. They tell you the position they were in. It was swollen within the first day. It was a bit painful and the knees felt a bit unsteady since. They might not say all of that, but if, if say that is the story they give you, you, you're landing pretty close to the diagnosis without even touching that knee. 
And if and, and I always say, if a patient says to me, there was no one near me, I felt a pop and it was swollen within the day, they they need to go and get some imaging because it's basically an ACL injury until it's until it's proven otherwise, in, in my opinion. Um, and, and the problem there is, you know, if we as physios we like to keep things we know that we like to, we like to keep everything in house we like to treat everything but I, I would say this is one of those injuries where getting an opinion of a surgeon that you trust not necessarily for surgery but look i think you should have a look at this knee it sounds like they've had a traumatic event which has resulted in this knee injury which we're looking at with the mechanism we just discussed i think we might have an acl injury and and as a result they're probably going to get an mri and i would say an mri is is best practice to diagnose this this injury um if they go to the nhs um nothing wrong with the nhs i've worked in the nhs but they, they might have only received an x-ray the person might have felt that and said well you know feels like you've just sprained something that's not too bad the x-ray was clear which can be common um or you know we haven't fractured a bone so we're, we're not expecting to see a lot on an x-ray for instance although you can get subtleties that present you, you can sometimes pick these up in a private clinic or, or a clinic like uh, that we both work in where they think they haven't got a significant injury, but everything else points towards it. From a clinical exam, once you've listened to them, there are some simple tests which we will do. Um, there's a variety. I, I always say to people, um, you've just heard it, you, you, you know, especially newer physios, you've just heard that story, you know what it is don't get tunnel vision and just focus in on that ACL. You should do a whole knee exam because like we said, it's, it's uncommon to ice only injure your ACL. But in that assessment, I'm going to look for particular special tests, which uh, give me a high chance if they're positive that they've injured their ACL. And then I'm going to do some other testing, which is going to hopefully rule in or rule out the other structures. So what are those tests then? Is that you looking at the stability, the integrity of the knee? Is it, is it getting them to move around, you know, or are they kind of more specific than that? Yeah, so I think uh, the, the second, you use stability and integrity. And, and I actually really like that second word because stability is very dynamic and is controlled by lots of systems. Um, but the integrity of that ligament is what we're really trying to find out. Have they injured this ligament significantly? Now, I would use what's called a Lachman test, uh, probably supported by something like an anterior draw or a lever sign or a Lely's test. Now, these are conducted on the plinth. Um, the Lachman test is, is, sim uh, is a simple stabilise the femur, glide the tibia forwards and kind of look for a, an element of translation, for instance. Alongside that, um, I'm going to be looking at, you know, is there gross swelling, for instance? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to kind of have a look at that with what's called a sweep test. Trying to, trying to see if I can move any fluid around in the If it's brand new, there's going to be loads. You, you don't need to kind of have a test for that. You just look at it and say, that is a swollen knee. Then I am going to look through uh, some more sort of passive, if you want to call it that, so, or some clinic-based te tests for the other structures. I'm going to look at the meniscus. I'm going to use potentially a simple McMurray's, for instance, which is you know essentially a compression rotation test of the meniscus. And then I'm going to try and glide valgus. We said the MCL might be in, uh, incorporating this. So I'm going to want to have a sort of valgus test of that MCL. And then I'll look through um, some other important ligaments like the uh, or structures like the posterior lateral corner. 
especially if they've had a hyperextension and various space injury. I'm going to look for that. Um, uh, and then I'm going to, you know, like I say, check the rest of the knee. I do ask them to do some movements, but if it's an acute knee, I'm essentially trying to come out of that session with a diagnosis and a plan. And if, and if it's an acute knee injury that's very swollen and I've got what I think is the diagnosis, my plan is probably going to be, right, well, you need to go and see a doctor and have a, a, specific, a knee specialist and get some imaging. And then I'm going to say to them, alongside that, we need to start to try to calm this knee down over the next few weeks so that we can get a good quality image and so that we can start to you know, get rid of that swelling, reduce your pain and start to get that knee functioning normally. Well, that, you know, it's a really nice segue that then brings us on to that management, you know, when it comes to that ACL. So for someone who has, has just had it, you know, they're in the first couple of days, early weeks, they might be waiting for that kind of appointment with a knee surgeon. Is there something which, you know, they can be doing, you should be doing to do usually brace people, you know, should they stick a big heavy brace on straight away, you know, to kind of help the knee um, or, you know, is there exercises they can be doing? What's your usual advice there? Yeah, the, the bracing is a, it kind of comes and goes every sort of 10 years. I feel like we kind of change our minds about bracing. Um, uh, there's there's going to be some stuff that's going to come out of Australia very soon uh, around a, a particular bracing protocol, the cross bracing protocol, which I think will probably determine, de depending on the results that are achieved there, which look very positive, might change our attitudes to bracing. And we might be bracing a lot more of these. You, unless the person's having multiple instability episodes, um, as in that knee is giving out on them really regularly, then there might not be a role for a brace if they're able to walk relatively normal. normally. Um, you might crutch them, for instance, and enable them to just kind of be a bit more confident. If they've got a very, very swollen knee, the knee, knee feels unsteady and unstable, and you're a bit concerned that you're, they're going to have a second injury on top of the first injury, that might be an instance where you're looking to brace this person before they go to the, the consultant. So it, it sort of depends. I would say um, if you if that was the diagnosis in certain situations, you're going to have to wait for a while to see a consultant. Sometimes it's sensible to brace that person, depending on what's going on. If you're in a situation like mine where they're probably going to see the consultant within the next two days uh, and perhaps you're comfortable with with how they're moving, then you might not brace. So it's not it's not as easy and not as cut and dry. But like I say, the there are some elements to that with regards to what they can do outside of the sort of standard bracing uh, and sort of crutches to make sure they're steady. I would be looking to rapidly reduce swelling and pain. If you can rapidly reduce swelling and pain, that person is going to use the knee more normally. The more normally they use that knee, the more likely they are to keep their muscle function. Very specifically in, in, in an ACL, for instance, we want those uh, quadriceps or the thigh muscle at the front to be working efficiently as soon as possible uh, because that is what's going to help you feel stable on your knee and that strength uh, and function is going to allow you to move into normal patterns and very commonly if you get a large amount of swelling in the knee and lots of pain what we tend to do is shift the weight away or shift all the pressure away that's that natural protective system we have and as a result, we're going to end up with gradually deteriorating muscle function through that injured leg. And especially we see that in the thigh muscle. Um, so I'm going to retrain them to try to well, retrain. I'm going to teach them, sorry, how to improve their swelling. I'm going to use lots of elevation. Elevation is really good for it. I'm probably going to say to them, look, your knee's really angry. Let's not try to hit our 10K steps every day for the next week. 
let's maybe reduce some of them steps and drop, you know, quite significantly and just give that knee a bit of a break. I'm going to be really focused on restoring range of motion. Some lose a bit of extension. If it's very swollen, they're not going to be able to bend it fully because that swelling is going to be in the way. But I'm going to look for them to get that motion as much as they can within their painful tolerance. I'm not against them using pain relief. You know, it can be really quite painful, especially if they've involved the MCL, for instance, the medial collateral ligament. That tends to be a lot more painful than the ligament with inside the knee. So for those, you might say to them, look, well, it's quite painful. You're going to be using the brace. You're going to be using your crutches and you're going to be using pain relief to just bed that down. Alongside that, I'm going to, with regards to training the thigh muscle, we don't have to be too complicated at the start. We're not saying to them, you need to go to the gym and bang out your leg presses and your leg extensions and all that stuff at this point in time. Simple activation exercises done in extension. And I will always say to them that extension is their extension rather than just zero. If they're one of those people that have got loads of hyperextension, you want to get near that as quickly as you reasonably can. Um, as presuming it's not really painful and not exposing other areas of the knee. And I'm trying to get them to fire that thigh muscle back up. Can you squeeze it? Can you hold it? Can you lift the leg with it straight? All the kind of standard stuff we teach all the time. And we don't have to try to reinvent the wheel with this stuff at the start. We just need to be really specific about saying to them, you know, you're going to be doing less. That's okay. Because if we get a knee that's quiet or calm uh, with regards to swelling, pain and function of functional range and, and muscle activity, then we're in a good spot. Then we can start to properly rehab. We just need to calm it down. And, and with the aim of that, to just to maintain that quad strength as much as possible. So even if they're going to have surgery in 10 days time, two weeks time, three months time, it's just maintaining that strength as much as possible because then obviously... As I say to patients, the stronger you go in, the better you come out often at the end of the day. So if we just didn't use that leg for the next three months, you're going to atrophy, you're going to get a lot weaker. And then coming out the other side, potentially you're going to have more of an uphill struggle to get that range of motion back, to get that strength back after the surgery. Totally. I mean, I always use the, um, uh, the Warren Buffett quote, which is like, don't lose money. And if you want to make money, don't lose money. So if you want to do well, you need to try to lose as little as possible which we know we're going to lose some at the start. It's, it's nigh on impossible not to lose some function in the early, early days. Um, but just let's try to keep that small, keep it as small as we possibly can and exit strong. You know, we want to say in one, two weeks, however long, and, and very commonly at one week, if they do the right things, they're like, my knee feels all right now. It does, you know, it's not that swollen. It's not that painful. I've got reasonable function. Um, I can start to get my full motion, but the knee will stay swollen for a little while in a way, but we just don't want that gross suffusion of that big, massive knee that's just lingering and not going. That's, that's a problem. So then mo moving on to surgery, you know, if, if we just keep it just to the ACL, because obviously we, we mentioned that if you have a big meniscus tear, if you have lots of things, then you're, the chance of you having surgery potentially is going to be higher. But with just kind of an ACL tear, what are the indicators for when someone would have surgery compared to they wouldn't have surgery? Do you, you know, if someone sees you, do, are you generally of the opinion this person is going to down, go down the line of having surgery compared to them not having surgery? Yeah, like, look, I, I think whatever you, wherever you go and whoever you talk to, there's going to be some differences in this criteria. But, but for me, there are some things that kind of make me think that they might have a chance to cope. The, the first one is 
I like them to come in and say they want to try to cope. Uh, and, and psychologically, I'd like them to kind of be ready for that in a way. So I want them to kind of come in and say, do you know what? My knee actually feels all right. And I'm kind of not really that fussed about surgery. I'd like to try to avoid it. But they're the kind of things, the kind of mental perspective. But there are some other things. So an isolated ACL definitely has a chance. Uh, if they have no um, history of big previous knee injuries, like a you know I've had a big bucket handle meniscus tear on my on the medial side that I've had trimmed, or I've had a, a large MCL injury that didn't heal, for instance. Those are also things where you might think, okay, well we're affecting that side. That that might be a problem. Hypermobility can be an issue or hyperflexible knees can be a bit of an issue because they just got more degrees of freedom to go through. Again, that, that's not a no-go, but it's something to think about. Um, I, would, I would say the young person, if we're talking, you know, pre-teen or very young teens, especially high level, they're probably going to end up with surgery. Um, and at the moment, pretty much any athlete playing a high level sport is going to end up with surgery. Now, whether that's right or wrong is, a, is, is something to debate in a, diff, a whole different realm, but um, it's a predictable uh, time course for most athletes. And as a result, the, the medical department can say, right, well, we're going to have surgery and we're roughly going to be ready by then. That's an easier um, timestamp for them than to say, okay, we're going to try conservative for however long. And if it doesn't manage, we're not, you know, because they're just clubs don't operate like that. And I'm not saying that's right, but that's how, that's often the case. Um, those are kind of some of the key variables that might make you think about whether they could or couldn't cope. Now, the other thing is often if they're one of those that are going to say, well, you know what, I, I, I do a bit of skiing, but I'm not that bothered about it, you know, and, and that was the mechanism it happened. And, and actually, all I else I do is cycle and run, and, and 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 you know I'm not bothered about doing other field-based sports. Again, that that gives you a good chance to think. Well, the opportunities that we spoke about before for injury are, are relatively low, and are presuming this person manages fairly well and doesn't have any more instability episodes, um, then that's fine. They might have a good chance, and and the instability episode, sorry, is, is something else to take note of. If that person has had recurrent instability throughout their early rehab, this knee keeps giving out on me. I would be concerned about trying to pursue a conservative approach in those. Now, to be honest, if you're managing them well, and, and I, I don't see many that have just recurrent instability, full out giving way episodes that often, they are out there, but they tend to come with other stuff as well you know, they tend to be the ones with all the other injuries as well, which we don't need to go into. So those are kind of the categories I might, I might think of. Um, to be honest, in the UK, nearly 80% of people have surgery still. And, and, and that, you know, I'm sure that's consistent across many, many countries at this point. There, I, there is potentially some change, but that's pretty much everyone has surgery, irrelevant of whether they should or shouldn't. That's pretty much the case. 80%, yeah, that's... that's, that's probably what I would have expected actually but it might sound quite high to a lot of people if they're not really in the field if you see what I mean you know it's a it shows how important this, or how effective the surgery can be as well you know which, which which is fantastic and that kind of then brings us on to the surgery quite nicely as well so when we're looking at surgery and they're repairing this ACL what do they do do they sew it back together do they you know graft from another tendon what what are the options here yeah, so 
you know, the, the sewing it back together with regards to the ACL is, 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 is a non-starter in, in my opinion. Um, they, there are some protocols for that in, in children. They do do some um, ACL repair work. To be honest, at the moment, anyway, the body of evidence is not particularly good for a straight up repair. Um, most commonly in the UK, and I see a lot of these injuries, most commonly people are going to end up with a hamstring tendon transfer based surgery where they'll take a portion of your hamstring and they'll essentially wrap that around and stitch it up till it kind of gets the thickness and, and, and uh, appropriate diameter for, uh, for, for an ACL graft. And then that will be put through the knee in, in, in as close to sort of a, uh, the angle in which uh, an anatomical angle, the for functional an angle for that person as possible. Now, there are some other graft options. You can have uh, a patella harvest where they'll use uh, a bone plug um, from the, the patella, essentially part of the, uh, the ligament the tendon sorry that attaches uh, that area you can go above that and use the quad tendon similar sort of thing really it's just the, the tendon above where they'll take a bit of a bone plug uh, some of the tendon within the middle and then another bone plug and they'll put that through now the reason in which you might have a quad or patella graft over a hamstring graft tends to be a bit varied but the, the there is some debate around re-rupture rate if you look at the best surgeons in the best sports it washes out to be fair there's there's not a huge difference but if you're um if you're dealing with a high level athlete you might not want to disadvantage their hamstrings especially if they play a sprinting based sport a high speed sport because you want them to perform at high speed and and some would say that if you're disadvantaging the hamstring which has a high uh, an important role in that you might have a chance of you know kind of hampering your athlete a little bit there is an argument to say that the the quad and the patella grafts which have a bony plug incorporate faster as a result of the, the bony plug incorporating into the tibial aspect much faster and as a result that faster healing rate means you can rehab a bit faster and as a result again in an athlete that might be helpful um, uh, and then in terms of other options you could have a cadaver um, like a donor uh, graft um, they don't tend to be used as much in uh, certainly a younger person uh, or a very athletic person again there's a few reasons behind that there does seem to be a higher risk of re-rupture it's a it is, if you manage the person appropriately that's that can be mitigated, but there does seem to be some higher chance of re-rupture. Also, there's a higher chance of that stretching out a little bit. So you're getting a bit more laxity, which if you're going to be, again, pivoting and cutting at a really high speed and you're going to have surgery, you don't really want that to then be lax. You, you want it to be functioning as per the best it could possibly be. Um, and then the incorporation time or the time in which that um, graft is, is able to function well and tolerate all the forces for it is a bit longer than it would be in sort of your own tissue being used as a graft. They're the sort of three or four most typical grafts, really. So mostly it's your tissue versus not your tissue. And then it's the front of the knee, quad and patella versus the hamstring is, is probably the most typical graft options. Um, if I was going to counsel a patient about graft option, I will always say the best surgeons will pick the best graft for you. They will not want to see you as a statistic on their re-rupture rate. 
And as a result, if they're telling you, look, for instance, you're a hyper-flexible female um, that plays a high-speed cutting sport, and I don't think taking part of your hamstring is sensible here, I think we should use patella, for example, or we should use the other hamstring, which sometimes happens, not that common, but the other hamstring, then they're saying that for a reason. They're not saying that to build up their stats with that graph or because they have a particular favoritism for it. They're doing it because they think that's probably the one that's going to benefit you the most. And this bespoke surgery for your knee in your situation, taking into account your um, factors, I suppose, that predispose you to these problems is the best way to go. So the last thing then is the recovery, kind of the big question that I'm sure everyone wants to know. How long are we talking? When, you know, post-surgery, you know, you wake up day one, how long are we going to, I know it's going to be hugely varied with a lot of people and a lot of sports dependent, but are we looking at three months, nine months, 12 months? You know, what are we looking at in timeframes? Yeah, I mean, I imagine that this will go out to mostly the lay person like you and I. Sorry for banning you in my non-athletic population or non, <laughs> non-athlete yeah, I, population, sorry. Totally with you, mate. <laughs> um, but... For, for almost all people, I would say to them, you need to think about a year. Now, most commonly now we've, we've moved away from a little bit of time, but, but it is important to give people a metric so that they can work towards. And I would say, look, you, you, you need to think about a year. If you're already at nine months, that is potentially suitable. And there is lots of data to, to suggest that, you know, every month you wait up to nine months, you reduce your chance of uh, re-injury by up to 50%. Now that's really, really significant. Just waiting that long, as long as you've got good rehab, you're giving yourself a really good chance. But I would say the experience I have working with mostly non-elite athletes is that, yeah, it's, if you're working a full-time job, it's really hard to rehab enough to be ready at nine months. So give yourself a bit of slack, enable yourself to have some of the ups and downs that are inevitably going to happen in a, you know, a nine to 12 month rehab period um, and, and, and aim for a year and anything better is an incredible recovery. So then what does that rehab look like when we're talking about for, for the non-elite athlete, you know, the, obviously these elite athletes are going to have daily physio strength and conditioning everything that you know you can throw at it for the for the, the the regular joe you and i you know kind of do your acl are we talking daily exercises are we talking you know what does it look like yeah i mean it changed the, the better you get through the process um that changes at the start you're going to be doing multiple rounds of simple exercises for swelling pain functional range of motion and quads activation like lots of times a day you know that that might be four to six times a day in the first few weeks now as you go through that process and we're able to kind of think less about calming the knee down and readying it for exercise the more we can make that exercise program feel like an exercise program where you have um, a training session a few times a week rather than a few times a day and as that exercise program gets more intense you're going to need more recovery time and as a result, again, that might get a little bit further away. So we tend to break it up into phases. You know, you've got your early phase one where we're just calming it down. Phase two, where we're trying to gradually pick up the amount of load it can take, but still respecting the early healing processes. In that little phase two, we're talking, you know, multiple times in the week, not necessarily multiple times in the day. 
once you get into typically phase three or what most would term return to running phase, linear running phase, then you might be doing anything between two and four sessions a week, depending on your the, where you are in that phase. And as you go into the you know phase four, which is return to training, build-based training, change of direction, that sort of elements, agility, you, you might only have two heavy strength sessions in that week, but you might have two other uh, sessions which are derived around you attending uh, a controlled training environment or seeing, for instance, a strength conditioning coach to improve your um, change of direction ability, agility, for instance, apply metric capabilities. And in phase five, where we're really talking about kind of, you know, polishing those final bits, shining the shoes as such, then in that bit, you, your sessions are really derived around readying you for sport. It's going to be as close to what you would normally do around the times in which you play sport as, as possible, but with some stuff that's going to be derived around, you must continue to be strong and engage with a strength program and ideally be doing a prevention-based warm-up so that we can try to keep you where we've got you prevent it happening again whilst also attending some really high intense training and return to sport in a graded way so that we can get you back to activity and what i always say to people unfortunately is if you have a significant knee injury like this you basically have signed up for a lifelong mortgage at the gym you you you, you cannot really continue on a knee like this if you want to play level one sports field-based change of direction pivoting cutting sports if you don't sustain and maintain that strength and, and, and engage in a, a in a relative prevention program which we could term as the strength or we could you know harness into warm-ups and such but you're wedded to to training basically uh if you want to continue at a good level i think that's really important to note actually because obviously that's good advice for anyone you know get a mortgage at the gym and kind of you know build up that strength but I think that's really important to note that, you know, I've had my surgery now, I've done nine months of physio, I'm good, you know, I'm fine now, I can just carry on, go back to my day job and then be a weekend football athlete. And as you said, you know, the chance of then you having another injury increases, the chance of you then having another injury somewhere else again increases. So maintaining that, I think, is really, really good advice and important advice for anyone listening. Yeah, it's, you know, we know that the, the stats are, are not great for us, really. You know, 20 to 30%, depending on the paper you read, will, will suffer a re-injury. That's not a, a stat that you like to tell to your patients, really, but it's just the cold, hard truth at the moment. We know that prevention programs, prevention programs are largely uh, warm-up based um, programs like the, the, like the original FIFA 11 Plus, for instance, and there's variants on that. Um, you know, they reduce... Uh, secondary injuries and, and ACL injuries in general by up to 50% and, and in some um, demographics more. Like if you've had one of these injuries, why would you not use something that might reduce your injury risk to doing another year's worth of rehab by close to half? Why would you not engage with that? So, so that's, you know, what I always say to my uh, ACL athletes as well is probably most of the, the people at your team don't want an ACL injury. Probably most of them don't really know how to warm up you now have, you know, the kudos to go and say, I know this warm-up works. Uh, I know it's going to help us prevent ACL injuries. It's probably going to make our warm-up a bit better for the sport we're doing. Why don't we do elements of this? And we know you don't have to do the whole thing. Even half works. works. So um, I often will say to them, this is the document that's appropriate to your sport. Go and teach your club 
And if you do manage to get them to do it, send me a video and I'll post it on my Instagram because that'll be awesome. Um, but, you know, we, it's just about trying to trying to limit as many of these as we can because it's a, it's a horrible injury of a long process and they recur more often than we'd like them to. So if we can get more people preventing them, I think we're in a better, better state. Brilliant, mate, Andrew. That was that was fantastic. I think you know that's a, a whirlwind tour of a hugely complex topic. You know, we could go into each one of those points you know, and talk on it for hours when it comes to rehab or surgery or anything, or prevalence or injury rates and all those things. So, thank you so much for kind of taking the time tonight and giving us a chat all about kind of the ACL. Love for people to go and check you out, check your social media out. Where can people go to find a bit more about you or a bit more about ACLs and their journeys? And yeah, I mean. I mean, you can find me uh, mostly on uh, Instagram. I do post a little bit on on Twitter. Uh, my Instagram is at Sports Knee Physio. Obviously, I pick that mainly so I just come up in everybody's search bar if they're searching for knee. So I tactically pick that. It's the same. I think it's Sports Knee Fizz on uh, Twitter because it doesn't allow enough uh, characters. Um, if you want to come, <laughs> if you want to come and see me, I work at Pure Sports Medicine at Canary Wharf. Uh, I work there five days a week, so you can come and see me there. Um, and then if you're interested in rehabbing these, uh, myself and uh, James Phillips, SSC coach, we, we teach um, ACL um, rehabilitation to, to physiotherapists. Um, and we, you, we've got another couple this year and we'll, we'll have some more next year. So you can you can check that out as well um, that you can find the link on my on my Instagram if you like. Brilliant. We'll pop it in the uh, in the show notes as well for anyone listening. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've had a, a good evening and uh, hopefully we'll catch you again on another episode. Yeah, hopefully. Brilliant. Thanks, mate. Peace Thank out. you.